Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, North family. <laughs> it's good to see you guys this morning. Hey, before diving into our teaching time, I just want to bring a couple uh, announcements, updates for you guys, a couple opportunities uh, really to, to serve, to connect with our community, and also to grow. The first is this. Happy October 1st, right? It is October 1st. So uh, first official day of fall, I don't know, whatever it is. But um, coming from 12 years in Ohio, I'm like, I'm not buying it. I see cactus. I don't see fall leaves. But anyways, you can put all the pumpkin stuff you want. I don't, I, it doesn't feel like fall yet, um, but this morning was nice and cool. I'm like, well, maybe it does a little bit. So anyways, happy October 1st. With October comes the big day in October, October 31st. And churches uh, a lot of times are scrambling for what they uh, want to do on Halloween night. And a lot of times, like we've done, you host trunk or treats or gatherings or fall festivals, and some people hunk, hunk, hunker down, pretend the night doesn't happen. Um, Here's what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to be the best neighbors possible on Halloween night. Uh, There's a phrase in church leadership that says something like this. If your church were to disappear tomorrow, what would be missing in the community, right? Like right now, if North Bible Church just evaporated, what would the people that live, work around North Bible be missing, What difference were we making while we were here? But we know the church is not about a building. The church is about a people, a people of God. So I guess we can ask the same thing. If you disappeared from your neighborhood tomorrow, would your neighbors even know? What would be missing in your neighborhood if you weren't there? And so this is the one night of the year that you've got people actually knocking on your doors. You've got neighbors in your doors, in your neighborhood. They're out and about. It's a chance to learn their names and connect and and to be uh, the the, the best place possible. So we're going to be giving out this week. Check our socials. Check your email, all digital communications. We're going to be sending out some ideas of how you can really neighbor well on Halloween night. Uh, just fun ways to engage your neighbors, or if you don't have neighbors, you know, maybe teaming up with some other family members or North family members uh, to just really bless and engage your neighbors. So we're asking you to focus on a night of neighboring uh, there on October 31st. Uh, The second is, a lot of you know this, some of you have been listening, but uh, I'll be heading out to Israel in a week from today. Rika, myself, and a team of people are going to be boarding a plane and going to a study tour in the Holy Land uh, for, for, uh, for about 11, 12 days, starting next Sunday. It's a phenomenal time. Uh, we had hoped to have some spots for uh, North families, and we didn't initially, but we actually did get to sneak in one couple from North. So Gary and Sherry Crawford are going to be joining us on our first uh, North you know, Israel trip. We're excited about that. But I've been hearing this buzz of like, um, so are you going to go again? And I didn't plan on having a 2025 trip to Israel, but I've had enough conversations with a lot of you to say, I guess we are. So it's official. Uh, These are the dates. October 12th through the 23rd of 2025, uh, North Bible Church will be having its first um, all-church study tour to the land of Israel. Why do we do that? I I know not everybody can go, but we want to offer the opportunity for those who can it is one of the greatest, in my opinion, it is one of the greatest investments in your faith that you can make. We know our faith is real. We know the Bible is real. But being on site 
where what you hold in your hands was written just reinforces the reality of your faith. And, and everything that you've read in black and white, and there's cultural context and a geographical context, there's so much missing when we just read the Bible. But being there in the land, walking where Jesus walked, walking there uh, where the Old Testament patriarchs walked, is just a mind blower. And so we want to at least offer it for those who get a chance. So you've got two years to plan and save and all those kinds of things to, to do that. If you're interested, um, just go ahead and send us an email at Israel at northbible.com. You're not signing up. You're not committing to anything. You're just saying, I'm curious to know more. I'd like to stay informed. And uh, just send us that email. Uh, I'd start today. That trip will probably feel pretty quick, and we want to take as many people as possible. So just a couple opportunities I wanted to make sure that you're aware of as we uh, prepare for our teaching time. So I've got a lot to cover in our teaching time. Let's pray and then dive in. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for the chance to be together. And God, we all come right now from just different weeks. Some of us have had great weeks, exciting weeks. Some of us have had very hard weeks, challenging weeks. You're a good God when it's good, and you're a good God when it's not. So pray that you help strengthen and reinforce our faith today. Lord, as we again enter into this book of Galatians, would you um, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to receive what you want us to receive through your spirit today. Make us more like Christ. Help us grow. Help us to take the best news known to humanity out to those who so desperately need it. We ask this in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen. I woke up early that morning. I'd already got my clothes out the night before, and so I brushed my teeth, took a shower, got my clothes on. Uh, I went ahead and did all my Saturday chores, just ready to roll, slammed a bowl of cereal, and then I waited. And then I waited some more. Then it was 15 minutes late. So then I turned on some TV to kill some time. And then he was 30 minutes late. And I started to pace and just, just you know, it's amazing how much slower the clock goes when you're waiting, right? Just felt like it was taking forever. And finally, about an hour later, the phone rang. And although my mother took the call in the next room, I already anticipated what was about to happen because I heard how flat her voice was on the phone conversation. And she came around the corner and she said, I'm sorry, son, he, he won't be coming today. And through tears, I remember saying to her, but he promised, but he promised he would come today. And it wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time that my birth father, who said he would come and pick me up and spend the day with me, failed to do so. But I had grown accustomed to the disappointment. I had grown accustomed to the broken promises. I want you to think about the people in your life that have broken promises. Your mom, your dad, your spouse, friends, just people in your life that have broken promises. And how, did, how has that impacted you? And what has that done as far as your ability to, to trust and to have hope? Because all those moments in our life trigger a deep longing inside of us to have promises fulfilled, commitments made and, 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 and carried out when they're given. But we know that we have broken promises and we've had promises broken that have given to us. But we have this longing for a promise keeper in our life. And so we can celebrate the good news that God is a promise 
keeping father who not only keeps his promises, but he also takes enslaved sinners and invites them to be his beloved children. He is the answer to the deep longing. And the promises he has given us will be fulfilled, some now, here, and some in the future. And as we continue in our No Going Back series in the book of Galatians today, we're going to be reminded of the Lord's goodness and the Lord's generosity and the Lord's faithfulness to his children. So I want to invite you all to open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. If you are new or a guest or you haven't been coming, uh, we have been in this series in this Bible book of Galatians just going through it a little bit at a time and unpacking the content there and teaching from God's Word. Uh, As you turn there, just a point from last week. Last week I shared um, that every Christ follower can use spiritual discernment to identify false beliefs because God has given us His Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. This is a huge part of what God is communicating through the Apostle Paul to these early Christians in the first century in the region of Galatia or modern-day Turkey. He's trying to help them wrap their minds and hearts around the potency and the power of this good news and how it changes us and how the good news, the promises of God have been given by a promise-keeping God. But there's so much more to the gospel than just forgiveness of sins, than just a promise of eternity. Uh, there's a lot that happens to us and for us when we put our faith in Christ alone for forgiveness of sin. That's the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And today, I want to specifically share with you from our next passage of Scripture that the gospel of Christ reveals to us and reminds us that we have a promised inheritance, we have a provided intermediary. You're like, great, what's that mean? We'll get there. And third, we have a powerful identity. So with that, let's get back into the book of Galatians again. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 15 and just working our way through the verses that follow for a little bit. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, because we see here that God has given us a promised inheritance. Galatians 3.15 says this, To give a human example, brothers, he's picking up where we left off, talking to the Galatian churches. Uh, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a, what's the next word? Promise. Some of you that haven't been here are like, what is happening, right? Let's talk about this. Paul is using a human example to get across a spiritual point. That just as when a person draws up a will or a trust, once you sign on that will or trust, it's irrevocable. Somebody might have a difference of opinion, somebody might want a different outcome, but once that sign is done, you cannot revoke that 
document. It's a promised action that will be carried out. And in the same way, God has given us a promised inheritance, a gift. He's provided it through multiple people that he's lined up to fulfill his promises. So God says promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord promised to this man named Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people, that he was going to give him land, he was going to make him a nation of people, and that he was going to bless the nations of the world through his offspring or through his promised seed. These promises have been kept by God. He gave Abraham and his descendants a promised land, the land of Canaan, our modern-day Israel, right? He has blessed him with a nation of people. All Jews and Arabs trace their ancestry back to this elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah. God fulfilled that promise. And then, through the lineage of Abraham, came the promised seed. This is the prophesied Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And verse 16 makes it very clear that this offspring spoken of here is Jesus, whose death on the cross and resurrection from the grave truly has blessed all nations, all people, because through it, the death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave is an invitation into relationship. It's an invitation into forgiveness. It's an invitation into eternity. It's a promise that God has made, this gift that God has offered through these promises. So God has offered promises. Now, because Jesus is the seed of Abraham, all those people who put their faith in Jesus Christ to be made right with God and for forgiveness of sin become heirs of the promise. We receive the promise through belief, the saving of our souls, spiritual blessings that come with salvation, a new life empowered by the Holy Spirit to live on earth now, and a promise of eternity in heaven. A couple of the verses that speak to that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so the Lord says, I've, I've given you a promise. And I started it with Abraham, but I've fulfilled it through his promised seed, that all those who believe in him can be partakers of the promise. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, what's the next word? Inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so like a signed will, a signed trust, this promise is irrevocable. No one can change or alter the promise of God that he's offered his children. And unlike our human and earthly inheritances, this is very important, okay? Uh, God promised inheritance to those in Christ is not about a dead person 
leaving to living people an inheritance of corruptible earthly possessions. It's about a living God who offers dead people, dead in sin, right, his indestructible and eternal inheritance, having the power to take those who are dead in sin and make them alive in Christ. What a beautiful promise. God has promised this to his people, to his children. God is a promise keeper. So when we read these verses and understand them, we're reminded that God gives us a promised inheritance, but what did he do while we're waiting for the promise? What happened while we were waiting for the promise, and especially the Old Testament, you know, Jewish people waiting for the promise? Well, he provided an intermediary. What is that? An intermediary intermediary is an agent that acts as a go-between between two people and two parties. And so when God gave the Jewish people the Old Testament law through Moses, consisting of hundreds of moral, social, and worship-related rules, it was a temporary mediator between God and his people. And, and, and what it seems like is it feels like a checklist, right? Here's all these hundreds of laws that you must fulfill, you must carry out, in order to be on God's good side. That's, that's what it feels like. Now, the reality is the law, all these verses that talk about the law of God, the law is good. The law is godly. The Apostle Paul and all the others in Scripture that speak about the law are not condemning the law. But what they're trying to point out is the law, all these rules, can't bring a dead person to life. They, they are insufficient to provide forgiveness. And so we have a promise, but until that promise happens, God says to my people, I have a law that I'm going to give you to help you. And it has multifaceted values. That's why when a group of religious Judaizers came into the Galatian church and tried to convince all the Galatians that basically what they needed to do is the only way they were ever going to see the promise is that they went through the law. They put the law above the promise. Well, God has a promise for you, forgiveness, eternity, you know, to, to, to be his. But in order to get there, you got to get through the law to get to the promise. Some of you have been raised in some sort of religious context that still teaches some form of this that the law is above the promise. And the only way you're going to get to God is by checking all the boxes. You've got to say certain prayers. You've got to do certain religious activities. Uh, you know, there's just this long list of rules that you have, you have to accomplish to get to the promise. But we all know in Christ, Jesus checked all the boxes on the cross. He did it for us. But it doesn't take away the value of the law. It had its place. And it was this temporary intermediary for the time. Look at verse 18. It says, The inheritance, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So basically, the promise came before the law. And so all these people that were trying to be religious, they were trying to put the law above the promise, but in reality, the promise came long before the law. 430 years before this came into existence, this was there. 
the promise through Abraham, but God did bring the law to help during the time of Moses. But Abraham was here long before Moses. The promise was given long before Moses. So the law still has value, but it can't do the whole job. Look again at Galatians 3, 19 through 21. Because you might be saying, like, well, what's the point of the law? Like, what's the value of the law then? Good question. He answers it. Look at verse 30, look at verse 19. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring, Christ, should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. So the law was given because of transgressions. When you, when you study the Bible and you look at the Old Testament laws, you know, the Ten Commandments are part of them. So if that helps you to think just of the Ten Commandments, which is just a part of the law, just, just think of those. The law was given by God to help make his people distinct, unique among all people groups, but also the law kind of operates as a mirror for us to show us that we can't get to God on our own. We talked about this before. Pick the Ten Commandments, if you will. If, if you were to try to get to God by being good, let's just take the Tenth Commandment. Don't covet. We're done. Game over. Checkmate. Every day, we see something we'd rather have. Man, I like that house, that car, that thing, that bank account, that spouse, those kids. I wish I just had their kids. If their Instagram reel could just be my life. Man, we, we covet all the time. The, the reason that God gave that to us, thou shalt not covet, is to basically say, you're going to covet. You're going to break the law. It's your nature. It's your sinful nature. But I'm going to give the law to help you. And what it does is it creates a longing for that which is actually sufficient to bring us to God. But this is just a temporary law that God gave because of transgressions. It was temporary. Look at verse 19. It says that the law was going to be in place until the offspring should come. The law was a temporary provided intermediary, an interim part of God's plan until Christ came. Note here that God delivered the law to Moses through angels who then gave it to Israel. But again, the promise was made 430 years earlier than the law, long before Moses even was around. So Paul, again, is not condemning the law. He's highlighting how much better and sweeter faith is over law. How much better and sweeter belief is over behavior monitoring and behavior policing. Verse 22 or 21 points the, the, the flaw in the law, if you will, that we're told that the law did not give life. So the law was to trigger a uh, realization for the need of a savior who can forgive and save and make us righteous. So what, what does it feel like then when you're living under this all the time? Some of you have been in churches where you're like, that's exactly what my religious upbringing has felt like. Well, look at verse 22. It says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, 
until the coming faith would be revealed. So the coming faith in Christ was to be revealed. We are slaves until it happened. We're slaves to our sin. We're slaves to try to be, you know, <laughs> rule keepers for our entire life. The, the, the motivation is so different. When you, when you live under this, it's like, man, I have to, I have to behave. I have to behave to, to make God happy. But when you realize that God has a promise for you, and the promise is given to Christ, once you have Christ in your life, you want to behave. Conviction of sin runs deep. You, you feel it when you think in ways, act in ways, behave in ways that you know aren't pleasing to God. This doesn't have um, deep connection to the soul, but this does. So God knew exactly what he was doing when he put the law forward to create in us a longing for something, someone more sufficient that can actually give life. So the law was this interim intermediary, a guardian. Look at Galatians 3.24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law. Now the word guardian here is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's paedagogos. Like, great, what does that mean? <laughs> In the Greek there, uh, the word pedos for child and agogos for leader. So a lot of times in the Greek and Roman culture, because they didn't have a bunch of public schools like we do, they would bring on a pedagogos, a guardian. Uh, some of your Bibles might translate it as a taskmaster or a school or a, a, a tutor a schoolmaster, to come and instruct the kids. And so while the parents were doing other duties, the pedagogos would often guide the children and instruct them and discipline them. When you look back on uh, sculptures and paintings of antiquity of the Greek-Roman era, every now and then you would see this figure with the kids that had a stick. Any idea what that was? That was the guardian. They used that stick for correction, for discipline. And so that was a common part of the culture, and Paul's tapping into that understanding. He says the law was your guardian. It was your pagogagos to, to, to keep you in line. But the instructor, the guardian, could never parent you like the parents. So the law of God is good, it's valuable, it's godly, but by God's very design, it was temporary and insufficient. God's promise would give us so much more than a temporary law to reveal our need for God. And so we see instantly God gave us a promise. God gave us this, this temporary provision to, to, to create a longing in people and to, to guide us in his ways until we would receive a powerful identity. Listen, I'm going to read some verses. I want you to listen and see if you can pick up on the powerful identity God has given those who are in Christ. I'm looking at Galatians 3, starting with verse 25. He says, but now, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. Continuing on in Galatians 4. 
I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under the guardian and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What identity did you hear all through those verses? What'd you hear? Shout it out. Oh, you guys are so timid. Come on. (laughs) Sons of God. Heirs. Children of God. God has given us the most meaningful, significant identity possible to be his child. The way that God says, the way I'm going to have you experience the promise is through relationship. Now scratch the fact that some of us have had poor earthly fathers. We're talking about a perfect heavenly father who won't abuse, who won't abandon, who won't break promises. And so God has designed us to connect with him through relationship that we will be called his children. This is so important for us right now, and I'm going to spend a little extra time here because our culture is obsessed with identity. That's that's the battleground right now, is it not? It's the battleground inside each and every one of us. It's the battleground we see when we watch social media, when we listen to regular media, when we watch political, educational streams of information. Identity is the battleground. And what's so sad is people have this desire to say, I'm going to go ahead and create an identity, adopt an identity based on what I do, what I feel, what I feel every day, what other people say, what other people feel, what other people have spoke over me. I'm going to create an identity based on my accomplishments, achievements, my possessions, um, all these different options that people are grasping for, for identity and worth and value and meaning. And the sad reality is we've already been given the best identity possible if we choose Christ to be the son or daughter of God, to be God's children. That is so freeing that we are not, uh, our value and worth is not based on what others think or others perceived or by my fleeting emotions or my lack of understanding in my brain that grabs a particular identity and says, I'm going to hold on to this for now until I feel like I'm something different. And God says, no, you're, you're defined by your worth and value set on like how I see you. And you're precious to me. And you're loved. Like if you ever question God's love for you, you just got to look at the cross. What kind of love is it that says, I'm going to give my son as your substitute for your sin to die in your place so that we can be together. This is the most powerful identity that humanity could ever have, to be God's child. But we're not satisfied with that. And we chase after all the unfulfilling titles and labels and identities that the world is trying to force at us or entice us to believe. And the whole time, 
this relationship that God has drawn us together. And those who believe in Christ are adopted as children of God, and they have access to the promise through the Lord. See, as children of God, we aren't just saved from sin. We're not just saved from hell. We're saved for heaven. We're saved for holiness. We're saved for an eternity with God. And so it's critical to understand that this powerful and beautiful transformation that happens when we come to Christ and the identity that he offers us as his children amongst all the identities out there. Uh, Although he's now with the Lord, respected pastor and author and theologian Tim Keller said this, he said, Christianity is the only identity that is received, not achieved. You can see people, they come up with an identity and then they just scream at each other if you don't support my identity or you get screamed at if you're not true to your identity. I don't care how you guys are forming your identity. There is no identity like the one that you can find in Jesus Christ. That just sounds so, that just rings so true based on the scriptural understandings. And so the verse here says that in Christ we become God's sons. Looking through the lens of the family structure and culture, the reason that Paul says sons is he's tapping into the understanding that a father will pass on his name and he'll pass on his belongings and his responsibilities to his son as the next man up. He's the heir of the name. He's the heir of the legacy. And so the concept of sonship communicates that all who belong in Christ, men and women alike, are the recipients of the Father's name. Recipients of the Father's legacy and heritage. And once we come to faith and understand that, we are, as verse 27 says, it says we are baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. That was what was so beautiful about what we just saw. Is these people going public with their baptism says, I just want everybody to know I'm in Christ. They didn't, they didn't be put in Christ because of that water. It already happened in their heart. But the water baptism is a declaration that I am in Christ. I've been immersed through faith into a relationship with God through Christ. And now I've put on Christ. Uh, for years, one of, the, one of the sports I participated in was I was a swimmer for years. Some of you, any other fellow swimmers out there? Woot, woot, okay. Um, you guys know what I talk about when I say the swimmer's jacket, right? There was this long jacket that you would have by the pool. If you ever walked into school or walked around a pool, you'd always know who the swimmers were because they had the swimmer's jacket. You would put on the swimmer's jacket and it would identify you, oh, you're a swimmer. You didn't have to walk up to a letterman's jacket and go like, what's your sport, what's your activity? You just knew that was a swimmer's jacket. When you come to Christ, you put on Christ. And everybody goes, oh, that's a follower of Christ. They're identified with Christ. We're immersed in Christ. And once we are in Christ, we have been brought into a family of faith, a common faith in Jesus that makes us family with all other believers of Jesus. And our common faith in Christ breaks down the walls and the constructs of the culture that try to divide us. This is really important about what we're about to talk on. Some of you saw the verses I read and like, hmm, what's it going to do with this? In the Galatian context in the first century, think about the early church. It was a mixed church. There were Jews and Greeks. 
There were slaves. There was, whether it was indentured slavery by volunteerism or whether they were purchased, uh, there were Greeks and Romans that practiced slavery. And so a lot of times in a church gathering, you would have the master and the slave together. But they might have both professed faith in Christ. So now there's this kind of working relationship, if you will, but now there's this other relationship that's come online, master-slave. And of course, there were men and women. A lot of times in public settings, wouldn't even sit together. They were isolated from one another. And so what you're seeing here is that uh, Jews and Gentiles and men and women and servants and slaves and masters all were together. This, this statement that Paul made was radical because he elevated women and he took down uh, certain dividing walls that were present in the culture between the value and the equality of those three categories. So it's a very radical statement that was destroying cultural lines of separation. In Galatians 3.28 it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What he's trying to get across here is that they were unified. That they were one, that they were unified. He didn't say you're the same. That's the rub. He said, oh, you're all the same now. You're all homogenized. You're, you're identical. He says, no, 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 no. You're, you're unified. And so we got to get rid of the cultural discrimination and superiority walls that are there. And so picking the topics he said here, uh, using ethnicity to divide people like Greek and Jew should not exist in Christ. Using a social class to divide people like slave and free shouldn't exist in Christ. Using a gender uh, to divide people like man and woman should not exist in Christ in a cultural construct for division. What Paul was saying here was whether you were Greek or Jew, whether you were slave or free or man or woman, you all come to Christ the same way and all have equal access to Jesus. And there's no advantage for the Jew over the Greek or the man over the woman or the master over the slave. You all come to Christ equally and you all equally have the same access to Jesus. And so unity, yet, listen carefully, with diversity and distinctiveness. And so the labels they were coming up with and the labels we come up with now should have no bearing on a person's redemption in Christ or their spiritual identity. Believers in Christ are one in Christ, yet we still hold distinctive roles and functions. For example, Paul did not cease being a Jew. He was still Jewish. He was also still a man. So he's one with his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but still holds his distinctiveness of who he was. And so believers still had clear external distinctives. Men, women, Jew, non-Jew, boss, employee, wealthy, not wealthy. But because we're united in Christ, those labels don't have weight and should not. We treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what's happened is some people have yanked this verse out of context to support their political or ideological agendas or preferences, misrepresenting it or misapplying it. And so this verse to make, is, is used to make the case there's no longer distinctives between men and women or roles, but that's not the context of the verse at all. What's so sad, like so many other times, a verse that God gave us for unity has been heavily used for disunity. God says, you're all one in Christ. 
You're a unified family. And so this passage is about intimacy and unity as a family in Christ. We are Christians before we are anything else. None of us would adopt labels in our community to identify ourselves and lead out like, hey, everybody, I want you to know I'm a white Christian. I'm an Asian Christian. I'm a black Christian. I'm an educated Christian. I'm a wealthy Christian. I'm a non-wealthy Christian. Like, you just would, hey, I'm a male Christian. I'm a female Christian. I'm like, like, we would never, like, identify. we just say we're a Christian. That's what he's getting at here. Equal access, unity in the faith. And so the spirit of this verse is that there's no superiority and there's no inferiority in Christ. We are all the children of God. And so we can't succumb to some of the false teaching out there that wants to use this verse to cause division away from this precious identity that we have as family in Christ, as fellow children of God, the most powerful identity possible. Verse uh, 6 and 7 of Galatians 4, let's look at that one more time. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We cry out, Abba. It's Aramaic, for father, for dad. It's a term of intimacy and familiarity. And through adoption, through belief in Christ, we're all adopted into the family of God and now have the privilege and opportunity to call God Father, Abba. For any of us who have adoption in our family, we specifically and uniquely know some of the nuances of how powerful that is. That we adopted these boys and girls into our lives. This is you saying you are now part of our forever family. And we're one and we're together. And when we adopt a child into our home, we say, you are mine, and all that I have is yours. That's what Christ has done. That when we believe in the Lord through Christ, his death, his resurrection, God says, you are mine, and all that I have is yours. What else would we want? And our flesh says lots of things. But yet we have the best identity possible. And the reason some of you are struggling so hard, if I could just tenderly, lovingly, boldly go to, the reason so many of you are struggling, so unfulfilled, so tormented, so anxious, is because you either have never come to Christ and embraced that new identity as a child of God, or you've come to Christ, but you're not really holding on to, fully understanding, walking in, living in, anchored to who you are in Christ as a child of God. You care more about what other people think of you than what God thinks of you. That's why you got to keep posting your life. Look, at, look how amazing. Look how awesome. Look how fun. Look, I'm good. I'm good. There's nothing wrong with interacting with social media, but what's the motivation? What are we really looking for? What do you feel when you go, crud, I only have three likes on something that was so heartfelt? And then you put some stupid picture of your cat and you get like 100, right? Like, what are, what are, what are you looking for? What's the deeper need and longing? God's already given it to you. He's a promise-keeping father who has turned slaves into sons. We're children of God. 
God's amazing identity. So the gospel of Christ is such good news. It reveals to us, reminds us that we have a promised inheritance. We had a provided intermediary and a powerful identity. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. As you're processing what I've shared today, I just want to encourage you, like, no matter who's let you down, no matter who's broken the promises, when we read through Scripture, we have this clarion call back to who God is and back to what He's provided. I've got two declaration sentences I want you to work with. And if you've got a pen and paper, or if you're digitally taking notes, I encourage you to write these down and find an answer. And, and really brainstorm the answer. All the different answers that come to your mind. The first question is this. Because I've been adopted by God in Christ, I have what? Like, what do you have because you've been adopted by God in Christ? Like, what are all the words, what are all the answers that come to your mind that you would just, I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and I have this. Also, in the same way, as you look down the road ahead of you, because you're adopted by God in Christ, I can what? Like, once you understand that identity, what, what can you do in light of that? So if I can just gently give you some homework. Share those answers with the people you're with right now. Share those questions and answers with other people you encounter over the next, you know, rest of the day. And celebrate who God is and who he makes us when he gives us a promise. <laughs> and make sure that we know that we can get to it through relationship. There's still value. There's still value in understanding God's code and, you know, what pleases him, what makes people distinct in him. But don't forget, there's a promise and there's a relationship that God has so that you can have that. For those of you who are in Christ, just a couple options for what you can do walking out of here. Take those answers, celebrate them, thank the Lord. If, if you're a follower of Christ and you're like, man, I've, <laughs> I've never gotten baptized, we're going to have another one December 3rd. Just reach out to us, baptism at northbible.com. Say, I'm interested in baptism. We'll talk to you. But if you've never given your life to Christ, you're like, how, how do I do that? How do I take that step of faith? It's, it's, there's an ABC memory help, which is A, you just admit you're a sinner and you need God. B, you put your belief in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. And C, you commit your life to following him. It's that simple. Even while we're worshiping, even while we're closing, you can say, God, I admit I'm a sinner and I need you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave for my sin. I commit my life to following him right now, right here. If you do that, myself and a couple friends are going to be up here after the service, hanging out. We'd love to celebrate that with you. Or if you've got questions about what it means to follow Jesus, come talk to us. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this time. So much there. So much more still there. But God, I just pray that you just took my words. And God, that you would just really highlight the beauty, the power of being a child of God. An identity that's more important than anything else. Thank you for the promises you give. Thank you for the beauty of the law that you've given. Help us all to walk in Christ, be like Christ. For those who don't know Christ, God, give them the courage, the boldness to step forward today, surrender their lives to Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. We all said together.
Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.